Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hey, everybody. Hello and welcome. I'm Mike Murphy. I'm co-director of the Center for the Political Future at USC. Joining me is our esteemed director, Bob Shrum, and a very esteemed panel to tackle this incredibly important and powerful topic, a topic I've been looking forward to for months to uh, have this panel and discuss it. So let's get to it, and I'm going to introduce them. Uh, Joining us is Morteza Degani, and I apologize if I might have mispronounced your last name, uh, Morteza. He is an associate professor of psychology and computer science in that critical intersection here at USC Dornsife. He is an expert in semantic analysis, especially in political language and social media, which is where all the power of the conversation is now. His research spans the boundary between psychology and artificial intelligence. Very excited to talk about that. Cheryl Horry is the founder and chief strategist of Pacific Campaign House, a full-service digital agency serving nonprofits and political organizations. She was deputy digital director in 2016 for the leading pro-Hillary super PAC, Priorities USA Action. John Patzakis is the executive chairman and founder of a software company called X1 Discovery. He has an extensive background and expertise in e-discovery and corporate compliance, combining strong knowledge of both the law and the supporting technologies in those key areas. And most important of all, he is a USC alumni. And finally, my old friend from the old Republican wars of many decades ago, Katie Harbuth is joining us. She was a public policy director at Facebook for a decade, where she was credited with building a global team responsible for managing elections and working to get global governments and elected officials from all levels to use Facebook and Instagram as a way to connect and engage with their constituents. She is also the founder and CEO of Anchor Change, a civic tech strategies firm focused on developing solutions at the intersection of tech, policy, and business, uh, focusing on global issues related to democracy, elections, and civic engagement online. And let me say by way of full disclosure, I have been in the past a consultant to Facebook. I currently do a newsletter for their bulletin program with Robert Gibbs called axontap.bulletin. Uh, com. It's free, comes every week. All right, but we're getting some Facebook fastballs, I think, in. So let's kick us off. You know, back in the Bronze Age of politics, when I started out, Trump started in the Stone Age. I was a little later in the Bronze Age. When you go to a local campaign, the key thing the campaign manager had, let's say you're running for state representative or, or mayor of a smaller city, would be a lockbox, you know, gray steel key, You'd open it up and there'd be $500, $1,000 maybe of stamps in there. And volunteers would come in and there'd be postcards and things you sign and they'd dole out the stamps like gold coins. But that bought communication. Well, now in the digital era, the stamps are free. Is that good? Is that bad? We're going to debate that and delve into it. But we know the impact is tremendous. So let me kick it off to anybody who wants to address the topic and feel free to jump in. Uh, We're not super formal in these things. What do you think are the biggest things that technology, particularly digital technology, 
has done to change politics, both in the fundraising area, the mother's milk, as it's often said, and in the political communications area, and in voter psychology, how people consume information, what they trust, what they don't trust. Big topic, I know, and we're zeroing on more, but let's kick off with that big picture. What are the biggest impacts? I'm happy to jump in. Um, thanks sure. for thanks for having me. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot because uh, 2004 was actually my first uh, presidential campaign and campaign I worked on. And that was the era of the e-campaign, right? And there's actually a lot of things from that era, micro-targeting, even though it wasn't online, it was offline ads, but um, and the rise of bloggers all started in that election campaign period. And when you think about just the rapid rise and change of technology over the years, we never really had a chance to really catch up and think about. We had a very utopian view of what this technology was going to be and what it was going to do in terms of potentially democratizing our elections, helping more voices get out, et cetera, which I think has happened. But now we're in this what I call reckoning phase of trying to figure out, like, do we really like what some of these things have been? For instance, you know, I think about the impacts of small dollar donations. At first, that seemed like a wonderful thing to be able to get, not be reliant on big donors. But now you have candidates who will go and say more extreme things uh, to try to get those small dollars from all around the country. And it actually can, you know, be giving us different incentives uh, towards what our politicians are saying and what they're doing on these, these platforms. The last thing I'll say is I'm reading a really interesting book called Outside the Bubble. It's a study by some um, that was put out by Oxford that talks about how the internet has really helped to bring more people into the process than normally would. And I think that's an interesting thing to look at as well in terms of who has capitalized on that in utilizing the internet and where we are today in terms of who's getting elected. Cheryl, we've democratized fundraising and, and politicking, good or bad, or both. You're on the front lines of it. You're doing campaigns and advocacy work. What what do you think is going on right now out there? It's a really complicated question and that there are benefits, like Katie was saying, like there has been an effort to bring more people into the fold, to engage with more people that might not have previously cared about politics or felt like it impacted them or it was something that they should be involved in. And so I think that there there definitely is something to be said um, there with with digital um, making it more accessible. I do think, though, that there are some other things that we that we definitely can um, unpack here, especially around targeting and and privacy. One of the things um, that we've sort of seen over the last um, election cycle or so is that a lot of big tech firms have started to crack down on um, on targeting and privacy for how campaigns or digital agencies like myself can use data to to really hone in and find the people that we're looking to to make sure that the message is accurately going to the the specific audience um and so we're really we're really seeing some some things that are both on the on the good end of you know we're opening up more to um to more people but we're also seeing um some challenges here where when targeting um, is limited. So for example, Google in the 20, um, the 2018-2020 cycle decided that for political advertisements, they're no longer going to allow um, advertisers to use anything other than age, gender, or zip code to identify people they wanted to reach. 
Um, and so if you're looking at political leanings or if you're trying to reach black voters in Texas or LGBT voters in California, you don't really have that ability to do it with the, the new targeting parameters, which makes it a lot more difficult for some community groups or campaigns who know they have a very specific persuasion audience they're trying to talk to. So it's mechanically harder to target now. But what about this global issue of privacy? A few weeks ago, my wife Googled something. Next thing you know, she had an ad for it on her Facebook account. And immediately she unplugged every computer in the house and threw the Alexa in the swimming pool. Because the theory was that they're gathering all this information and the critics of the tech companies will say, yeah, okay, they're taking politics out. But they still use the technology everywhere else they can to violate privacy. And they have algorithms that start being very predictive. I I don't think most Californians know that any campaign can pull your voter file and they're going to be, you know, in commercially available lists, 200 pieces of data appended to that. So we do, digital allows us to collect so much information. And I'd like to also get, get over to John and uh, Morteza. You know, what about the psychology of this, the kind of reinforcement amplification when on social media, okay, there might be less paid targeting, but you choose who you follow and you follow people who become a trusted source for you. But there's no editor, no verifier. How do we know that when my cousin tweets something about, uh, or excuse me, on Facebook or or Twitter, says something about don't get vaccinated because the needles are full of nanoprobes that'll get to your brain. We just don't know yet. And it gets repeated because people say, well, he's a good softball coach. You ought to know something about vaccination. The the psychology of all this, how it tends to work with humans. Either you guys want to comment on that or anything else we've discussed? I'd like to take a step back and talk about targeted advertising. I, I mean, it's, it's sure. fine for uh, Google to you know, restrict the number of variables that are available. Uh, for example, restricting the use of uh, political orientation as a variable. But they have so many different variables that are correlated to these psychological factors that not having political orientation uh, in there is not going to make a huge difference. I mean, essentially what these tech companies and companies like Cambridge Analytica and others have been able to do is that they've been able to connect uh, the data from our public lives to the data from in, into our, in, in our private lives. And essentially by doing that, by connecting, you know, uh, the websites we visit to the amount of time that we spend on different posts with how much we exercise, what restaurants we go to, what supermarkets we go to, uh, they've been able to essentially uh, give the key to our psyche to these other companies that can then use to make uh, more targeted advertising and more, more importantly, use it for reframing strategies and campaign messages based on very targeted populations. Uh, so I think, yes, removing some of these variables at the surface might seem it's important, but given that they have so many other variables that can predict the variables that have been removed, then that's not going to make a huge difference at the end of the day. Yeah. On the privacy issues, um, in some aspects, it's getting better. Um, you know, Cheryl mentioned uh, the enforcement she's seen by third parties that are using the Facebook platform. There's been uh, Facebook has is, is kind of gone uh, and the social media platforms have addressed that, to, to, you know, in terms of being more compliant. They were fined by the FTC $5 billion in 2019 over uh, privacy issues. They're still under monitoring and a consent order. So uh, they are addressing that, especially as related to user information used by third parties. However, uh, 
to your point, Mike, the the social media platforms and, and Google and the internet, they can use data themselves, I think, in ways that are very aggressive. Um, you know, there are laws that come out of the EU. The GDPR has, I think, uh, enabled users to to uh, to request that their information not be used in that way, or it's called right be forgotten. Actually, California residents have additional rights, other than uh, more so than the general population in the U.S. under the California Consumer Privacy Act that went in effect. Um, this year, you can actually not only leave Facebook, but ask Facebook to delete all your information you have they have on you. Um, but the, the big legal battle coming up is over the algorithms. Um, that's where the pending legislation is, um, and it's you know there's it's nothing wrong with people going and, and liking a post from uh, uh, you know a, uh, a political party or liking Fox News. The problem is that by doing so, they then get uh, introduced the, the algorithm selects content about QAnon or, or content that promotes radicalization, um, and it's all about engagement, right? That the more people get engaged, the more money Facebook makes, more money the social media platforms make, and that's where I think the big battle is going to come is is this new legislation or potentially lawsuits over the active nature of these algorithms. Mike, I want to jump in here because I want to ask a question, build off that. Uh, there's a lot of controversy now about Facebook and its impact on 2020 and January 6th. Are Facebook and Twitter shaping election outcomes, and are they being properly regulated? Do we need more legal restrictions on social media? I think there's two areas to look at this. One is the organic social media. So that's just what people are posting. I can go post. My mom can go post. Anyone on the panel or watching the panel can go post to Facebook. And then there's the paid element of that. So that's what campaigns and organizations, super PACs, dark money, whatever you want to call it, where they're putting money behind um, advertisements, posts, and videos to get that in front of people. And so on the organic end, I think that um, what John was touching upon with the algorithm is that at the end of the day, we have to remember that Facebook is, is, is an ad platform. They're there to keep people on the platform for as long as possible so they can serve them as many ads as possible. And so if that means continuing to show them things that are going to be the most clickbaity or the things that are going to, um, going to elicit an emotional reaction more so than something else. You see somebody got engaged, fantastic. If you see some injustice that's happening in your community, you're probably going to take more action or be more willing to share something like that on your, on your post or on your, on your own feed. And so, um, Rob, back to your question on, you know, is, are, are these platforms actually influencing politics? I would say, I would say yes. In the way that back, um, Back in 2004, 2008, if if there was something happening, we wouldn't we wouldn't be inundated with sort of a a, a tunnel a tunnel vision or um, of people saying like I agree with you, I agree with you, I agree with you. We kind of we read the newspaper, we saw the news. You weren't seeing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people also saying yes, like this is a problem, this is an issue. Um, and so I think that just that positive reinforcement for people um, and pushes them to to the extreme on on either end. Um, and to your question about are are some of these new things being enforced? On the paid end of that, to so the advertising end, um, 
I would say no. We saw in the last, in the 2020 cycle, there were a handful of um, rules that Facebook had put forward. You know, you can't say things like um, election day is tomorrow or election day is today when um, they had their, they, they put an ad moratorium. So no new ads within a certain period of time. Um, and we saw campaign over campaign that those rules were being broken and those ads were still, were still being put out there. Um, so I think, I think there's definitely two, two roads here of organic um, being problematic, but also the paid uh, area being problematic. So do we need more regulation? Again, there's regulation pending. Uh, right now, you have Section 230, which is, has pretty broad um, shield for the social media platforms. Uh, it was designed to, to protect them from, from uh, libel uh, liability and defamation, but it's been applied more broadly. So what's happened is Congress, both the House and Senate, introduced legislation last week to uh, specifically target, not to, to get rid of 230, but to amend it so that if there are active algorithms that introduce content that incite violence or uh, provide misinformation regarding uh, health, uh, uh, health information during a pandemic, then that would remove the liability. Then it's got to pass constitutional muster. And um, there is First Amendment concerns uh, that, you know, have, I think need to be litigated over this because that's, that's no certainty there. Yeah, that strikes me as a big, big part of this. Go ahead, Katie, and then I'll chime in with my follow-up. Yeah, no, I think that there's a lot of different areas where we need regulation, right? There's there's sort of five areas I've been looking at. One is certainly transparency. How do we better understand what's happening with these platforms, get researchers the data, but do so in a privacy-safe way, which is my second pillar of, of regulation, is around the, the privacy um, and those questions, Mike, you were asking around what are the right guardrails in terms of not only how the campaigns or um, how the platforms use data, but I do really think there needs to be a lot too on like the campaigns and the, the data that campaigns have on you. Because I, to my knowledge, I can't go to the DNC or the RNC and ask them to show me all the data that they have on me right now and how they're using that to, to target me. And I, I just don't like that very much. The third area is really around definitions. You know, Cheryl was talking about ads and all of those things that Facebook tried to do, full disclosure, I was super involved in a lot of, a lot of those decisions, but even defining what a political or issue ad is. Um, I need, we need a lot more than just Mark Warner's issues of national level importance. Um, we need a lot more specificity in order to enforce on those things. And, you know, all the platforms are taking their own definitions right now, which makes people like Cheryl's lives so much harder. Um, I think the, the final two areas where we need to look at uh, regulation is how do we encourage more competition? I like looking at data portability where it would make it easier for you to port your network of people um, from one platform to another. Those of you who remember 2015 and the live streaming app Meerkat, it was taking off because it was uh, utilizing your Twitter network. And then when Twitter cut them off, uh, they pretty much dried up and, and, and died. And so is there a way to foster more competition in that way? And then the final thing is we need accountability for CEOs like, like Mark Zuckerberg. I think one of the things people really don't like is that there's no real way to hold him accountable. It doesn't feel like he can be fired in any way, shape or form for the decisions that he's making. And given how big a platform like Facebook is, that just, I think, drives people really bonkers and there needs to be more accountability in some way, shape or form. So I don't know what that would look like, but those are some of the areas that I look at for regulation. Yeah, Morteza, Facebook was used from what we are now learning to spread the lie that the election was stolen. 
and to get, you know, somewhere between 35 and 40% of people to believe that, and a very high percentage of Republicans. Isn't that a fundamental threat to democracy and to the credibility of the system? Absolutely. And, and I think this goes back to Cheryl's point about the false sense of consensus that these social media platforms provide uh, in echo chambers. So when as group is started, you might have a few people, but as like-minded individuals join the group, people start thinking that everybody in the group has the same type of worldviews. And that can be dangerous. We have research now showing in Gap and other alt-right media sources, as clusters in the social network become more homogeneous in terms of the type of uh, moral language that they use, the rate of hate speech in the clusters go up. And we have experiments showing that by simply telling people, by assessing their moral worldviews and then telling them that they'll be joining a Facebook group in which other members share the same moral worldviews, they're willing to take much more extreme action to protect that group. Now you can imagine these groups and you have uh, Trump's moral rhetoric uh, encouraging people to go and fight for their rights. And then this echoing in these chambers and people uh, having this, again, false sense of consensus that everybody thinks that this is what's going on. This can be very powerful and very dangerous. You know, there's kind of a presumption in the world of social media from when it first burst on the scene that letting people, back to my stamps analogy, talk to each other for free quickly in the digisphere. You know, we used to talk about the precinct, the teacher across the street, the fireman down the street, the retired doctor next door. You all kind of knew each other. Politics was organized on that basis. Now it's a digital you know, it's people you went to high school live 800 miles away you're in daily contact with, but only through social media. So I get that sharing information about model railroading or grandchildren is easy and pretty harmless. But are humans built to share political information this way, where the incentives, the stamps get bigger, the hotter the information? Should it be easy for, a, you know, Antifita nut rock thrower or a white supremacist January 6th insurrectionists to find other people like that so effortlessly served by the amplification of a digital platform. I mean, we, we kind of have assumed it's all good. We give you ways to opt out. But are, are humans up to the task of communicating politically in these digital environments that have so little friction? You know, just to step back a little bit. Should it be, well, I'm normally a free speech guy, but there are a lot of other ways to express your free speech other than putting up a post on Facebook, uh, and if you've got a following, will be sticky, and then the algorithms will amplify you, or the Google search algorithm will push you to the top, you know, or whatever whatever it might be. Let alone whether you get to add money to it to spread the fire more. Uh, that's a question that I don't think has been asked a lot, but I think there's a case. Uh, like what happens, when, and I don't mean to go on and on, but the next step, and you know, this is a psychological issue, Mortiza. Maybe you start. We're going to have really good deep fakes. We're going to have Abraham Lincoln being very believable. We're going to have the candidate uh, doing terrible things. It's going to spread. So it is the technology to advance? Like we don't let everybody drive a rocket sled for people to share political opinions on? Or is that too draconian and anti-speech? No, I'm with you. I, I, I think because of the nature of our species, uh, we are very much tribal. And we right, value right. the in-group. 
and we push away the out group. And that's how we've evolved. In, uh, you know, when, when we used to live in villages, we wanted to make the cohesion of the group together to protect our group. And one way to do that was to push the out group away and not, the lead, not let the out group, which might have dangerous ideas or even dangerous pathogens into our group. And that's how we've evolved. Now with this technology, uh, we've, we're basically uh, simply feeding this desire to form more inclusive, uh, uh, more, I'm sorry, more uh, exclusive in-groups and push away the out-group and uh, uh, dehumanize the out-group. And that's what these algorithms are uh, achieving more than uh, simply spreading the news and sharing the information. And I think at the current stage of our society, uh, this is dangerous. Really good point. The other problem is the misinformation because there's the NYU study recently that showed that misinformation on Facebook was six times more likely to be shared. And that's because, you know, you can craft misinformation to be as uh, incendiary and engaging as you want because it's, it's false. Whereas the truth is always more nuanced and, and complicated, right? This is a, a panel on technology and politics, but to Mortiz's point, it's really about tribalism. That's in the sense of grievance that's really being fueled here. Um, but you know, the thing is, is that Facebook, I think a really important point is Facebook can turn us all off overnight. And uh, these algorithms are, are code and they're very specific what they're doing. And they just, you know, they have the shareholders also to answer to on the other side. I mean, Facebook actually got sued by the shareholders for accepting the $5 billion settlement from, from the FTC. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the board directors of Facebook just can't do this overnight uh, and allow their profits to tank. I think they all get sued by the shareholders. So in some cases from the corporate world and being inside, I've been I've sat on public company boards and sometimes we want regulation uh, to provide the uniformity, predictability, but also give us the reason to to comply. So um, th- th- I think that's really what has to happen here. There has to be there has to be meaningful regulation. Uh, I think you'll see it first out of Europe. They're already moving uh, to regulate these algorithms. So I think that will be where I think the impact will be first seen. If we regulate algorithms, just a criticism from the right, Facebook always, you know, it's funny, both sides agree they're mad at Facebook. The left says they're the tool of Putin and all the, you know, all the criticism we've heard. The right says the algorithms, you know, it's like physicists, God's left-handed, they're their fingerprints. And so the algorithms are all written by Bernie Sanders voters in Silicon Valley. So the algorithm, this is a, you, you go to the Republican third of the country, you hear this every day of the week about, about Facebook. So, you know, who, who picks the algorithm and how do you keep an algorithm in the political space where my negative ad is Bob Shrum's warning to the voters about the true downside of a candidate? Who polices the, the algos? Beyond the question of should there be algos pushing out info, who polices w- whether they're right or left-handed? Yeah, I, I think they're really more based upon engagement. Um, and so it's not a matter of, of changing. You know, listen, you can go on, on, uh, and, and like a lot of Bernie Sanders content, and pretty soon you're being, you know, you're presenting information that's that's really far to the left, right? It's, again, it's all about it's all about engagement. Um, so um, you know, there. There is a movement also to make these these algorithms more transparent. 
to know what's going on. But you can also test it. I think the results are, uh, you know, this person engages this way, and this is the content that's being introduced into the newsfeed. So um, I, I think that the whistleblower uh, has some some proposals about just make a corner graph instead of trying to predict how the user is going to engage. That's what these algorithms do. It's like based upon their past conduct, based on the profile, this is the contact that, that, that they're going to engage in most. Um, I think you can be more objective and just say, look, have it be chronological or random, or, or there's, there's certain ways you can do without getting into favoring one political side or the other. Ah, okay, good point. Yes, Katie. A couple of things. One, the chronological feed is not as great as you think it might be. Alex Krantakowicz actually published another doc that came out of the, the whistleblower stuff that was a study some of the, the team that I worked really closely with, the civic integrity team, did about um, how uh, the, the downsides of doing a chronological, doing a chronological feed. And so um, I think it's at least just worth, worth looking at because it, it's certainly not a silver bullet in terms of thinking about this. The second thing is that it, I think it's really important to remember there's a couple of different algorithms when we're talking about this. There's the algorithm that's sorting the content you've already chosen you want to see, the stuff from your friends, the stuff from the pages you've liked. And then there's the separate recommendation algorithm that shows you new content that you might want to see based upon those things that, that you've, you've liked. And there's been concerns around both of those types of algorithms. And then there's a third one of the types of ads that you see, and all of those are playing into what you see in your newsfeed. And so <clears throat> I think as we're thinking about some of this, and in fact, um, some of my former colleagues on the Civic Integrity Team launched an Integrity Institute today integrityinstitute.org, and they've got some recommendations on what algorithmic transparency might look like so people can have a better sense of what are the inputs that these companies are using going into those algorithms. And then there are some folks like Daphne Keller and others who have some interesting recommendations around do we start to give people different options of how they want to sort their content based upon what they what they want to, to see. And so um, I think there's a couple of different interesting ways to potentially go at this. I think one of the things that we, we talk about a lot, especially like in the, in regards to the 2020 election and to what happened on January 6th, um, is Facebook. But at the end of the day, if we look at who is on Facebook, um, their average user is over 50 right now. Um, so when we're thinking about how do, how do we talk to and like what is the next generation, Gen Z and beyond sort of coming up um, in the political space, how are they viewing politics? How are they seeing it through what apps? Um, I really think that having a conversation sort of around TikTok would also be really helpful here. Um, there was a recent study that was done that found that if you um, if you liked transphobic TikToks within 14 days of being on the app an hour a day, it would have brought you from sort of content that that promoted transphobia all the way to sort of the the neo-Nazi um, era um, and content. And so I think that that's also really interesting to, to talk about when thinking about young voters or people who are about to be able to vote and sort of what platforms they're currently on. Because we don't really talk about TikTok algorithms or the influence of politics on TikTok nearly as much as we do on Facebook. Um, but seeing as, you know, Gen Z coming up is going to be one of our biggest voting voting blocks and as some of the older generations sort of start to start to teeter off um <laughs> do you think it's, it's worth having a conversation um about bob's about on myspace and he has an eight track so yeah <laughs> but you're right you're right if you look at the demography facebook is yesterday's story 
Yeah, but I want to go back to the logarithms for a minute because I think to most people, they're like a black box. They're impenetrable. They really don't understand them. And what I was fascinated with was one of the revelations in these Facebook papers was that someone at Facebook had signed on a fake account in North Carolina, had followed Donald Trump, and was suddenly being inundated with QAnon material. So it seems to me that's a pretty simple logarithm. <laughs> I mean, if you like Trump, we're going to send you all this stuff. Katie could talk about that. Or more yeah, it's a bit more. It's a bit more complicated than than that. I don't know if if Morteza or other or John or others want to want to chime in, but um, you would be you you would probably be somewhat surprised at when you actually start getting down into trying to define some of the content. Um, and I think a lot of what the files show is how difficult. How the difficulty Facebook's having with their automated intelligence and what's called classifiers to proactively find and identify this content, how much that is very still in a nascent state and doesn't catch a lot of content. That's that's exactly right. And and, and that's 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 why I disagree about algorithmic transparency. Because for most people in the world, if we provide the even the code for the algorithm, they're not going to be able to understand what's going on. If you provide the code to engineers, they're not going to understand what's going on. These are sophisticated algorithms with billions of parameters that get automatically updated and, uh, and, and they learn over time about people's behaviors and they optimize based on engagement. So, yes, we can blame the algorithms, but it is not the algorithm. These algorithms are huge neural network black boxes, which we're still trying to figure out how they operate, but it is the focus on engagement. So the engineer or the CEO of the company doesn't care what the algorithm is doing. The CEO wants engagement to go up. So it is the dependent variable that's problematic here, not the algorithm. The algorithm is simply trying to maximize the variable that the CEO is interested in. Now that we've solved Facebook, because we have limited time, uh, let, let's move on a little bit. I, I want to talk about the free speech issues again. Donald Trump has been banned from Twitter. Is that an appropriate model of how these things should be policed? Is it enough? Will there be another Twitter in a year? He's now launched a digital media company to build his own platforms. Uh, the algorithm is going to love that because everybody's going to agree on 50 veritables. What do we think about that as an intermediate step? Should there be more banning? Should you be banned from life? Or it doesn't matter because these companies are constantly reinventing themselves and the same humans are going to find another way to use another another pipe to send their message. What do we think about Twitter bans and the like? Go ahead, John. The Twitter ban was all over about inciting violence and, and praising the right. violence of January 6th. And you know, they, there's terms of service and uh, inciting violence, violence, violence terms of service. And Facebook and Twitter are, are private uh, companies and they have right to have terms of service. And actually they can get in trouble for not enforcing them. Uh, so uh, there has to be some, they, there's a lot of exceptions that are made for public figures, but uh, there is the line that can be crossed. So it really just comes down to what are the terms of service of the private platform? There's no government action here. It was simply a private decision. And enforcing it. Any other opinions on the, the ban? Anybody think it was a bad idea? It was unfair? Not a good use of the... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Katie. Kind of. <laughs> well, I struggle with this one because I come at it from such a... I've, a fr I've always had such a free speech viewpoint on these things. And 
had a real struggle with people not being able to see what their elected officials have to say. And I agreed with it in the moment, but longer term, I do worry what this looks like should he run again in 2024. And I look at Steve Bannon, who's also been deplatformed from these things, and he still has a wide audience with his podcast still being on iHeartRadio, on Spotify, on Apple. He's doing all these regional deals with different uh, TV stations and radio stations and stuff like that to get his message out there. And part of me worries, does this just push this more underground that it's actually harder to be knowing what they are doing and who they're, who they're reaching rather than it being more out there? I, I honestly have not like come that fully down yet on, on what I think the right thing is. I wonder if there's more nuanced approaches where, you know, a lot of what we're talking about, you know, maybe they can have a account on a platform like Facebook, but it doesn't show up in the newsfeed. It's not amplified. It's not put in the recommendation engines and you have to go right to the page to actually see the content. Maybe it doesn't have the engagement buttons on it. I don't, I don't know, but I think that just the art, the, the black and white of leave it up or take it down, I think, um, isn't necessarily going to be the right thing. Here's something that worries me, the death of discourse. We're in this tribal model where I'm right, you're evil, is the, is the banner flown by both parties. Does telling us, or does realizing the fact, rather than telling us, that the next generation of voters, if you want to talk to them, you need nine-second TikTok videos, because uh, that's all their attention span is going to reward. And, of course, algorithms that say, oh, the shorter stuff works better, so favor the shorter stuff because we get more engagement and CEO make another $100 million. Uh, but meanwhile, they live on these platforms. How, how do you explain this complicated stuff in an eight-second emoji-filled video-stimulating universe? Or do you just say, go team? Is that a problem or am I an old fogey overreacting to it? I can start with this one. I think that a lot of yeah, sure. um, a, a lot of what we do when we think about our outreach and our audience is sort of one meeting them where they are. So if we're trying to talk to young voters, we're probably not going to spend a lot of time on Facebook. No offense to those who do. If we're trying to talk to older voters, or we're trying to look um, in mind for online donors, like we are going to be talking to to older voters. Um, and then similarly, when we start to break down some of the other demographics. Um, ethnicity, language preference, level of education, level of income. Um, so much of what we what we do in terms of serving them content is making sure that what we're putting in front of them is going to resonate with them. Um, so I, I think it's hard to say like across the board, we need to have the, you know, seven to 15 second, we call them snackables. Um, it's, it's hard to say that these that snackables are, are, are not going to to convey the message when maybe they're a part of a larger media plan that includes a two minute video explaining um, a particular issue area um, or banner ads. So the ads, if you're if you're reading like a, a news, um, a news website, the ads across or, or down the side, maybe those are also sort of like layering on um more information. So I think um, it, it really comes down to sort of who your who your audience is, um, and do they have do they have the attention span or or the bandwidth to read an eight hundred word sort of like expose or deep dive um, on the Washington Post? Well, you know, we were showing my young daughter for the first time the Princess Bride and the grandfather played by the great Peter Falk has a wonderful line. The kid doesn't wants to do a video game. He goes, "Well, this is a book. It's what we used to call television." You know, if we give them a choice, they're going to go for the snack, not the balanced meal. And one thing digital does is give people choices and disrupt things and then creates billionaires. 
Uh, so the incentives all seem to be lined up to me to a, a snack-heavy diet. Uh, you know, is there, should, as public policy people, we talked about regulation, should there be pushback on that? Or it's just the way of communication, we got to adapt to what is. I think that the last thing you said really hit it on the head, that it is the sort of the way of communication. And I think that that's something that we've seen sort of generation over generation when the radio became uh, became a thing and, and people weren't just exclusively reading newspapers. There was that same sort of feeling when TV became a thing, when, um, when streaming became became a thing, every every generation, every decade has that sort of pivot and shift. And I think um, when when we're talking about it, and especially uh, like myself as a practitioner, um, it's it's less about like how can we combat what we disagree with or we don't think is the most effective, and really let the data speak for itself. Like what is effective right now? What is working right now? Um, and really just let the data drive um, our our approach and our strategy. Let me jump off that, and before we go to audience questions, uh, ask each of you a general question. Are you fearful about the future of democracy in this digital age, and would it have been different if Donald Trump hadn't come along? I'll start. Yeah, I mean, I am fearful, and I think that we had a panel about this last year on tribalism, and one thing that was emphasized is that leadership does matter. Because uh, it's, it's the job of the leaders to appeal the better angels of our nature, not the worst angels of our nature. So um, I am feel I do think that Donald Trump has been transformative for better for worse. Process. Mortiza, are you fearful? I am fearful as well. I don't. I see Trump as a consequence, not as a cause, though. I, I think this is more of. Uh, um, you know, the properties of our society and the properties of, of how the technology is affecting our society and, and not just the U.S. I mean, we see Donald Trumps all across the world. We see uh, Donald Trump in Hungary. We see a Donald Trump in Brazil. And we see we see them all over. And, and yes, they are using social media for their benefits, maybe not uh, with the same extent or to the same extent as Donald Trump, uh, but social media is playing an important role in feeding these theocracies and, um, and, and people who want to have control over the masses. And I think if there is no regulation, the trend will simply continue and we will have more countries and more, uh, uh, you know, places in the world uh, misuse these social media, which were intended for passing on information, uh, to essentially have more control over their populations. Yeah, I'm nervous. I don't think all hope is lost yet, but I think the next five or so years is, is where the, the die might be cast if we don't act or don't take some actions. And I'm in particular very nervous about 2024 because not only will there be the US presidential election that year, but elections in India, Indonesia, Ukraine, Taiwan, Mexico, the UK and the European parliament all in the same year. And that's never happened before that we've had those countries all go to the polls um, around the same time. And I'm worried that companies, civil society, the media, governments, the international, international organizations just are not ready for that many elections to be happening all at that same time. Plus just the fact it's going to be such a huge geopolitical moment in terms of potential changes around leadership. I too am very, very um, nervous and fearful about the future of 
of our democracy. I'm completely in favor of regulations with the caveat that these regulations really need to be done with sort of a, with a scalpel and not a hammer. Um, I think that we've seen from a lot of uh, Senate committee hearings and things like that, some of the people who are being tasked with making these regulations and, and working on legislation just aren't, aren't in it every day. And so they, they think, you know, we're going to put this regulation up, it's going to help solve these things, but without really knowing or understanding the nuance of, well, this might actually impact voters of color more, or this might impact women voters more, um, and, and have a negative impact there. So I, I am really, really fearful, both sort of on, on the direction of, of where political discourse and conversation is going, um, and, and levels of extremism, but also when it comes to regulations, um, I, I don't have a lot of confidence that the regulations um, are, are being done or being created by people who necessarily have a really nuanced understanding of, of the impact of what those regulations are going to be. So one quick contrarian point. I hear a lot about digital technology is wonderful because it's democratized fundraising, taking it away from the big bundlers. I actually take the opposite view. In the old days, you needed money to communicate with people with advertising. So you would go meet with small groups of elites, labor union leaders, if you're on the left, constituency groups on the right, the Chamber of Commerce, ideological leaders, who might be ideological, but they were pragmatic. Now, if you get really mad on an email list, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world can get money on their own with no borders or control. So has democratizing fundraising been wonderful, or has it frankly been a disaster? I think that's a really dangerous conversation to um, to walk into, right? Because where where is that line drawn of uh, this person is is qualified or this person is prog- pragmatic versus where um, where they might be might be kind of a nut? Um, and I think that when lines like that are drawn, they typically tend to be drawn um, not in favor of people of color and not in favor of women. Um, so when when thinking about that, I I think it's kind of a complicated it's a complicated question um, to ask when we're thinking about segmenting who should be qualified to to give and who shouldn't. Well, let me just qualify. Anybody can give, but I'm talking about elites used to. Con- there was a filter process that wasn't so much ideological but pragmatic. I don't score Marjorie Taylor Greene two pluses for being female in a Congress that doesn't have enough women and only one point for being crazy because she has her own fundraising list and she can raise $5 million and is almost untouchable through digital fundraising. So I, I, I take your point, Cheryl, about you don't want the filter to overreact, but, but it has, it, I mean, if people disagree, I'd love to hear it. Has democratizing low dollar fundraising to take the power away from the gatekeepers been a good thing, a bad thing, or I guess the easy answer is a mixed thing. Anybody think about that? It's one of my bugaboos. Maybe I'm totally wrong. I've been thinking about it a lot because I think it's it, it's it's the incentives that it's it's encouraged, right? Again, because right. Of, of the fact that you can go and, and get you can fundraise across the entire country, and I can't believe I'm saying this as as a Republican, and I don't think I would have said it a few years ago. But like, do we make it that people can only fundraise from people in their district or the people that they represent? Um, would that would that change the incentives at all? I don't know. Um, if it would or not, you know, you find that these things tend to just move. There could be unattended consequences no matter, no matter what. But I do think that like, again, this is one of those things that I feel like I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, um, in terms of some of the very good that it's done in, in helping people to, to be a part of these, be a part of these campaigns, but it absolutely needs some more guardrails around it. 
Okay, I think it's time for questions, unless anybody has a wrap-up thought they'd like to contribute. Question one is from uh, Rich Proceda. Some people blame social media for the disinformation and division in America, but the main cause, uh, according to Rich, is the massive dissemination of false propaganda by major media outlets, politicians, and foreign governments. How much of this attack on social media is an attack on regular people's speech rather than addressing the actual sources? of disinformation. Thank you for that question. I think it's a really interesting question and an interesting conversation to be had. When it comes to social media, I would think about it less as sort of the end-all be-all and more of a vehicle to to get information out there. So when we think about some of the the more extreme news networks like OAN, um, Infowars, conversations like that that are happening, a lot of how they, they get that information out there is through social media. So while Facebook might not be the people that are producing that content, um, and that content might be being produced by um, these separate independent outlets, um, a lot of the way that the, that information, um, the language, the video clips, the posts are are through social media. Um, and I think that, that that sort of opens up a conversation about accessibility, right? Like, am I going to go to a very specific news website every single day just to look um, at what they're posting? Or am I going to go to a social media platform where I can see everything from friends and family? And then I'm also getting um, included in sort of the 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 wave of, of political news information. So I, I think there's a little bit on, on both ends, but it's important to remember that Facebook and social media does open up accessibility where it might not have happened before. It's a good, good point. And I ha- have another perspective from the legal standpoint we track computer evidence, uh, you know, whether it's in corporate networks, but also on social media. And you talk to litigators this day and these days, they'll say that, that social media is the new email. And that's where all the evidence is. If I've been tracking the January 6th cases, you look at the indictments and, and 90% of the evidence that the prosecutors are citing in their indictments come from social media platforms. And the reason for that is that Again, the users want to get engaged themselves, right? They want as many likes as possible, as many retweets as possible. So by doing that, you got to you got to post, uh, make posts that are compelling. And um, you know, it's easy if if you if you do that with your own content. But for for you know for for everyday folks, you know, a lot of that can be done through incendiary political content. Um, but it's also content that can incriminate you and, and the. Uh, you know, in, in the criminal context or civil context. So it's, again, it all comes down to engagement and back that study where, you know, misinformation is going to be six times more likely to be, to be uh, subject to engagement than, than truthful content. So a question from Matthew Watterson. If the tech companies can predict my consumer behavior nearly better than I can right now, as their algorithms become smarter and more sophisticated, it's not too far-fetched to think they will one day be able to not only predict my behavior, but also to influence and drive my behavior. That may already be happening. What are the panelists' thoughts on this uh, and how it impacts choice and, quote, free and fair elections? Because electing government officials is a lot more impactful than buying a pair of socks. And I'm now, I have an urge to buy a pair of socks, so I think the Internet has already struck. Or maybe it's the George Lakoff, don't say buy a pair of socks. Now we're all thinking about buy a pair of socks. What do we say? Does it control behavior? Could it? Or just it's effective to 
not it absolutely well, can. I mean, if, yeah. if it can control our consuming behavior, it can control many different facets of our lives. And, and it already does. It already controls what we look at. It already controls who we listen to. And it can definitely predict our behavior, maybe not to the, you know, to the full extent that the companies like to currently, but we should remember that these companies have information about uh, every little detail of our lives, how much time we spend uh, talking to our significant others and how much time we spend privately. So if this information is available, if, if there are smart algorithms out there, then yes, they can predict our behavior to a good extent. I would completely agree with that. And I think that's something that we tend to forget in the political space is that in the corporate space, they've been doing this for a lot longer and doing it a lot better than we are. Some of the, the data points that we that we don't generally talk about in, in talking about political um, that they do use in um, in corporate spaces are, are things like um, geofencing. If you walk into a Target, Target knows that you just walked in there, whether or not, you know, you're on the Target app or, or whatnot. Like they know that you as an individual with your phone that lives at your address just walked into a Target. And so they know if you're the type of person to go into a Target three to five times a month, they're the type of person to know, um, you know, what, what it is that you, that you bought from, from there to know how to serve you other um, other other ads. Um, some of the things that we have sort of been experimenting with on the political side in order to better target people. But um, from a consumer, I'm a little bit concerned that we have this much data available. Um, are things are things like what languages you speak? If you have a Spanish keyboard on your phone, um, did you know that that data is for sale? And so, if somebody wanted to target people who um, speak Spanish, um, knowing that you have a Spanish keyboard on your phone gives them that um, ability to to do that. Um, data points like income level, level of education, where you went to school, when you graduated, um, all of that data is is available for um, for corporate and, and consumers. And so it sort of becomes a question of how how and if will political use use that to influence um, build models. Um, of voters and then influence the the outcomes of the elections. Absolutely. In fact, that's why I keep my phone in a Faraday cage here to go right <laughs> off the grid. Old trick I learned working in the former Soviet Union. Thank you, everybody. This has been incredible. Appreciate all your expertise. We have our next Bully Pulpit is coming up on Wednesday, November 3rd. So please join the Center for the Political Future from 12 to 1 p.m. for a discussion on the United Nations Climate Summit, big thing coming up. All the details, the registration, and all the information about the center is at our website, excuse me, the USC Center for the Political Future, or you can follow us on Twitter. Here we are. I'm shill- I'm shilling for the digital future of politics at USC POL Future. Thank you so much, everybody. I think it was a really great discussion. Bob, any final words? Nope. I want to thank our audience, and I want to thank Cheryl, John, Katie, Morteza, I thought this was a really interesting discussion, and it left me apprehensive about where we're headed and whether or not a free society constructed the way ours is, is compatible with a digital society that's being constructed the way it's being constructed. Thank you all very much. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. 
It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.